Hello and welcome to the GXM podcast, where we explore news and topics around video game music and the intersection between the games and music industries. We aim to publish fortnightly, so please be sure to subscribe and spread the word. My name is Thomas Quilfelt. I work with Laced Records and also podcast with the Kane and Rince podcast crew. And my name is Matt Ombler and I am head of game and music partnerships at Laced Records. So Matt, it's been quite a crazy year. We, we started a podcast. We did. And it is going well. It's good. It's going well. <laughs> it is going well. Um, I'm really glad we got over the 10 episode hump because as I said, I read in some spurious article somewhere that most podcasts flame out at 10 episodes i'm really happy to got past that and um and yeah just super big thanks to all our guests so far some came out of the woodwork which was wonderful some we we chased down because we wanted to talk about a particular topic some were just almost happenstance we sort of happened upon them whether on twitter or last time out it was uh, justin i interviewed at the laced company lunch i sort of cornered him uh, and it's been quite enjoyable sort of i guess winging it a little bit i don't know whether next year we will get any more structured or plan ahead any further but um of course if uh, anybody feels like they have a topic they want to discuss or, or would like to contribute we'd love to think about uh new interviewees and people who might be able to come on the show matt what what's been your favorite um chat you've had so far i mean we're getting him back on again soon but i really liked the kind of fun wrap-up we did with anthony john agnella just because it was fun and just silly to be honest i really enjoyed that i thought the bafta chat about the Game Awards was really interesting with Luke, just because I think we got to learn some really interesting stuff from that. And today's guest, actually, Melanie Fritsch, who we will be hearing from later on, she is just a fountain of obscure video game knowledge. I mean, as a Luda musicologist and a researcher of video game music, this is it's literally her job to research video game music. So... Whenever we chat, I am just absolutely blown away by how much she knows. What about you? I think that you've had some brilliant chats. James Milker, to, to start off, you know, is our first interviewee. I thought that was super. I mean, he just, the way he kind of recollected, it just sort of took you back to a time and place. And I really loved going on that journey. I think uh, Dedico was uh, really super interesting because he's, he's just dedicated i don't know if that's where his name come from just dedicated to this thing of just getting music into proper dj mixes and making the best possible mix he can and highlighting um you know the goal is to highlight as obscure music as possible and it's always fun to to have obscure stuff thrown in um, i loved chatting to colin from sony that was awesome and i thought your chat with toa dunn was really revealing i mean um kda are just is such a kind of cultural force in music and video games. They're kind of the apotheosis of what we're we're interested in, really. So that was that was really really interesting. We've had some really good guests, haven't we? I've, actually, like just you naming those names, only like a couple I forgot about. Like we've we've genuinely had some really good guests on. If you're listening to this show now for the first time, or maybe you've only caught the last couple of episodes, do yourself a favor and go back and listen to some of the earlier episodes because. Tom, correct me if I'm wrong on this, but I think the way we interview our guests is we we always 
I think we said from the start we don't want we don't want to ever make anything too topical, right? Because we want people if they do listen back, it doesn't feel like the episodes they're listening to are too necessarily dated, and a lot of the stuff still stands. They're topical in the sense they have a strong topic, yeah. but then yeah, they're not um, topical in the sense that that you couldn't listen to them a year later or or whatever, and they'd be completely out of date. And therefore, although it was funny when we interviewed Luke about BAFTA, some of the stuff he said about the rules and the long list almost immediately changed the yeah. week after. <laughs> but I don't think that changes the majority of the content. I mean, the main dated thing is is always our news chat, um, but we make sure to always put the timestamp in the episode notes where you can just jump forward to the interview um, and skip the news if if you think that that might be a bit out of date or whatever. So um, that's why we do that, so that they are a little bit evergreen, I would say. Um, but yeah, I mean, going forward next year, I don't think we need a, a rigid structure necessarily. It's nice to kind of play with the format a little bit, introduce new things, do like we did last time, live chat here and there. And I'm just really looking forward to getting into like off the beaten track topics, like topics you just don't read about or don't think about very often and find the kind of the experts in, in those corners and really kind of expand our awareness of what video game music is, what it can be and how anyone in music can can interface with video games. What about you? What is there any topic area you feel like you want to really hit? Looking at who we've had on so far and what we've spoken about, I think we've covered a really nice and diverse range of topics, I think, around video game music. I think the one thing I would maybe like to dive in more is music supervision for game soundtracks, just because yes, yeah. I've done some research into that in the past when I've been writing stories about that kind of stuff, and it's something that I've always found interesting. I think purely just because personally I've found a lot of amazing video game soundtracks, and a lot of those soundtracks have licensed music, so I think that's one area. And then maybe some of the more business-savvy stuff that we're not necessarily going to hear about otherwise because this stuff's really important but it doesn't necessarily always make it into press so I think any interesting figures or those conversations that kind of go on behind closed doors in terms of who do you choose who you work with and what kind of things you need to negotiate on and what are some of the challenges that you're facing all of that stuff that mainstream audiences I guess might find boring but us as the music geeks kind of think oh actually that's really that's really interesting it makes me think there's a couple of areas I really want to find out about. I want to talk to like a, an orchestra booker, you know, and just find out what's in it for the orchestras to do these video game concerts. Like we know they're popular. We know they sell out. We know they're wonderful. We've, we've been to many ourselves. But specifically, what is it on the orchestral side of things? How does that industry view video game music and these programs? Um, and what are the kind of, you know, the upsides for them? Um, so that's really interesting, and and I think I think there's there it seems to be warming up a little bit to like musicals, gaming musicals. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about that in the news, but um, the Guardian also just uh, put out a piece about how uh, this year with Stray Gods and Alan Wake Two and various other things that sort of if not a straight out musical, video, lots of video games embraced 
musical numbers, characters singing, but not necessarily diegetically, but in a sort of musical theatre, theatrical way. So um, that's quite an interesting thread to tug at. And I've got a particular guest in mind who is from the theatre world, who I really love to get hold of. I won't <laughs> promise that, that they'll be on anytime soon, but um, I, they're a huge gamer. So I'd love to find out their thoughts uh, on that kind of thing. Exciting stuff. Absolutely. Uh, Matt, you just published, I guess, what will be your annual kind of VGC piece. That's Video Games Chronicle. Uh, and it's essentially just asking some of the best, uh, and I mean the best, video game composers in the business what their favourite video game music was from this year or it might be from previous years, but they enjoyed it this year. It's a it's a fascinating piece, and you've got some huge names on there. Who, who are your some of the standout contributions on that piece? Whenever I speak to Gareth Kirker, who is the composer for the Ori games, also did Halo Infinite. He's done plenty more too. He is just as articulate writing about music as he is talking about it, or like literally writing music. So he had loads of great choices. It's like, you can't just ask me about one game soundtrack. I've got to also name check all of these other ones, which I really respect. It was nice to see everybody not just going for the AAA scores. I mean, some of the obvious ones that you would expect are in there. Like naturally, we've got Starfield, we've got... Zelda. Yeah, yeah. Zelda, Baldur's Gate 3, Final Fantasy 16. So there's all of those ones in there. But there are also plenty of indie soundtracks or just smaller soundtracks that people might not be aware of. Some lesser-known soundtracks that made an appearance. We've got a game called Void Stranger that I'd never heard of. That's composed by somebody called E. Brosky, and that was chosen by Lena Rain, who has composed music for games including Minecraft, Celeste, Chicory, and Guild Wars 2. Don't even know how to describe the soundtrack, to be honest. It's just a mix of, like, avant-garde chiptune with God knows what else going on. enjoyed listening to that and lena's not the only one who picked it as well uh finger spit paula ruiz picked it as well cosmic wheel sisterhood as well that is an absolute banging soundtrack the flight chose under the waves by nicholas Bredin. that is another soundtrack that is definitely worth taking a listen to if you've not heard it already planet of is it lena or lana i think you know a little bit about this yeah so takeshi furukawa did uh, planet of mm. lana um which is this wonderful orchestral soundtrack i think i brought it in for my recommendation one time 
uh, and I did a, a written interview with him on Laced Blog. And uh, yeah, everyone should check that out. That's another one that might have flown slightly under the radar. If you enjoy your um, the, the soundtrack to The Last Guardian, which of course is absolutely wonderful, you should definitely check that out. And I think he's about to, to score, or he has scored and is about to be released, the Avatar The Last Airbender Netflix live action show. So it's exciting times for him. Ooh. Just a few more that are worth mentioning. There's Bomb Rush Cyberfunk, which is primarily licensed music but just loads of uk garage artists on there that are worth listening to a really nice pick from the composer of chained echoes who chose the decarnation original soundtrack which is absolutely brilliant and then one of my personal favorites of the year which is quite surprising considering i haven't actually played the game um but borislav slavov who is the composer for Baldur's gate 3 he chose Jason as his favourite soundtrack of 2023, which is just this lovely, peaceful, melancholic... I like moody music, like really moody, emotional music dominated by piano. That is like, that ticks all of the boxes for me. So I've had that on repeat just for the past couple of days because naturally everyone who's chosen their favourite game soundtrack, if I've not heard of it, I've got to check it out on YouTube straight away. So I've just spent the entire week just listening to video game soundtracks, to be honest, which has been delightful. Yeah, you, you've got to, I think if you're going to go through this article, you've got to have your Spotify or Apple Music or whatever up and be ready to make a lot of, stick a lot of things in a playlist to yeah. check out from this year. Because it's been a very, very rich year. I mean, both games and uh, and soundtracks. And um, yes, so let's get on to some news. Let's wrap up the last few bits of the year. And, uh, and yeah, and then we'll get into the interview with Melanie. Okay, Matt, it's Pokemon time uh, again. We have, uh, and it's Ed Sheeran again. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, if it's not, mind you, I say that, there's no Fortnite or Roblox this time. So uh, what's happening with Pokemon? This is a sentence I never thought I would say. Toby Fox, who is the creator and composer of the viral sensation indie classic Undertale has remixed an Ed Sheeran song, <laughs> which is just absolutely wild. So Ed Sheeran wrote a song called Celestial. It's an original song that was written for Pokemon Scarlet and Violet, the last entry in the mainline Pokemon games. And now Toby Fox has done kind of like this stripped back down-tempo remix like an acoustic it's it's really good I get stuck world's too loud things don't look up when you're going down know you're on reaching out somewhere beyond the clouds rinse and repeat rinse and repeat I get stuck I get stuck 
Like, there's a lot of Pokemon fans who are slating it, going, oh, I don't like it. It's not, like, very upbeat and stuff. And it's like, no, I like it. It sounds, like, grungy, a bit melancholic. I'm all here for it. I think it's genuinely a really good song. It's a remix that I think retains the bits that made the original song special while also adding something new. And it's definitely worth a listen. If there's anyone listening to this who hasn't heard it already, make sure you check it out. Awesome. So uh, we talked about the Game Awards last time out. We missed something, uh, which I forgot to mention, which is that there's a, a game announced called Harmonium the Musical. Uh, which is an accessible sign language musical adventure coming from the developer The Odd Gentleman, who made The Misadventures of P.B. Winterbottom. The hero is an adorable gap-toothed deaf musician called Melody Mikato, who loves to perform and signs her way through the story. So already it's got lots of things that really, I'd say, set it apart from other games. And it seems pretty, pretty ambitious to have to animate all that sign language and develop, you know, uh, an original soundtrack with songs. The trailer song, I thought, was very good. It's very Frozen, very Disney, very kind of Disney rock, I would say. So your mileage may vary with that particular genre. I'm sure they mix up the genre and soundtrack through different songs in the game. It's obviously still in development, so we'll find out more in due course. There seems to be this sudden spate of, I guess in some cases, in Austin Wintry's cases, literal musical theatre games, but in others, just these games that really have music wrapped around their core premise, and it's really refreshing to see. Yeah, but it must be, I mean, it's just, as we know, it's just really hard to do. Mm, yeah, <laughs> Like, it's hard to make a good soundtrack in the first place, let alone a good soundtrack with songs in it, and then you've got to make them interactive, and you've got to plan it around the story. It just seems like a, a, a lot of work. So we wish anyone who's who's attempting a game like that the, the absolute best, and, you know, hope that it finds the audience it deserves. Uh, what's happening with Elden Ring, Matt? So this was initially announced, I think, for what many people thought may have been an exclusive show in France, but naturally with an IP this big, it's going to end up other places. So we are now getting an Elden Ring concert in the UK. It's taking place at the Royal Albert Hall in London on April the 28th and will be performed by the Royal Philharmonic Concert Orchestra and the Crouch End Festival Chorus. I don't know if watching the Royal Philharmonic Concert Orchestra play a load of music from Elden Ring, which is incredibly intense, I think, <laughs> to say the least. I don't know if that's something... I mean... I don't need to tell you how much I love video game concerts. Like, we both really enjoy video game concerts. But I don't know if I could stomach, like, a full <laughs> one hour 30 of music from, I think, any souls. Like, like what about you? Um, <laughs> I wasn't totally sold on the Elden Ring soundtrack outside of the game, I think, because it's either extraordinarily ambient like yeah. literally just held chords just long held chords that that would have your heart rate you know through the floor and then you know incredibly hype kind of operatic 
boss music, which would send your heart rate soaring. But, I mean, that said, this will probably sell out in London because it's such a huge IP, such a huge game. And people tend to go to these concerts based on the game, not necessarily the music. You know, it has been found. And also, you've got to trust the arrangers, I guess, you know. Uh, arranging a concert program is an entirely different thing to creating a soundtrack album. One assumes, one hopes that the arranger who's in charge of this concert program, you know, makes a really, a really good show out of it. It's very on brand that there's no middle ground when it comes to the music either. Do you know what I mean? We're going to have what will, yes, I'm, I'm sure there'll be a couple of songs that are arranged to maybe add a bit more downturn to the whole kind of concert. Listenability. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Uh, dynamic range, yeah, maybe. But I love I love the fact it's very on brand because what have we had from Elden Ring so far? We have had a jazz concert featuring the famous jazz musician Kenny Bassett, <laughs> which is like the most avant-garde thing you could ever do. And now we've got a full-blown symphony concert. We're going to get a metal concert next, a death metal concert. Which, you know what, to be fair, that would actually work really well. That might, yeah, I mean, that might be the, the best form that, of it. That would actually work really well because I know so many people in like heavy metal bands, death metal bands in particular, who love Elden Ring and would probably kill just for a chance to rip that on guitar, just loads of tremellos. Like. And the cosplay would make the most sense at a metal concert. If yeah. you think about Elden Ring cosplay specifically. There you go. But speaking of guitar tremellos, or maybe not tremellos actually, maybe there's not too many of those in The Last of Us, but what is this new update in The Last of Us Part 2? So in The Last of Us Part 2, if you haven't played it, um, they went to pains to model and uh, sample an acoustic guitar that was pretty much fully playable within the game as a sort of for a moment of respite there's there's secret places you can find where ellie will play a song to dina uh, in the game uh, actually it's not i mean it's not a licensed song it's not a licensed recording i guess it's like a cover within the game within the diegetic world of the game and at other times ellie you can freely walk up to the guitar and play it and you can pick individual notes and chords and they sort of worked out all these mechanics around it classic naughty dog detail you know going the whole hog and the last of us part two is getting a ps5 remaster they've added a roguelike mode which seems pretty substantial and they've now added as or they've announced they're adding a guitar free play mode where you can unlock multiple instruments you can use audio effects pedals and play as different characters to customize the mood and feel of your set and that's from a tweet from naughty dog which sounds like the Death Stranding director's cut, they added some interesting, goofy, fun stuff that it doesn't fit with the mood of the game. You know, Joel jamming out on a wild, wild pedal or something. But I guess uh, it's fun and it's good for fans. And um, it shows a kind of an even more of a commitment to that mechanic that they presumably spent hundreds of hours, you know, hooking up and programming in the first place. That's what I mean. I think it's funny because with the exception of maybe Rocksmith, the... Ubisoft game, which is literally you plug a real-life guitar into your console and play, 
this has got to be the most realistic simulation of an in-game guitar, right? Probably, yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, I'm not a guitarist, but looking at the chords that were being played and the fingering animations and stuff like that, it was really spot on. So now, if they're doubling down on that and going, why not throw in FX pedals? And why not throw in more instruments? You know what would have been better than this, though, Matt? What? A keytar. Yeah, that's... I'd- <laughs> I, that'd get me for that. I want, <laughs> I want to sold on the guitar personally as a drummer and keyboard player, so that would get me. What else could you have, like a, a harmonium? They could just expand all the instruments. You could just play, you know, one of a hundred instruments inside The Last of Us. Very cool. The Last of Us jam mode, giving Fortnite a run for its money. <laughs> yeah. The four of us. Well, who knows what they were planning for their sadly cancelled multiplayer mode. Honestly, this was such a fun interview to do, and I can't wait for everyone to hear this. Our special guest this episode is Melanie Fritcher. She's a junior professor for media and cultural studies with a focus on game studies. Melanie's published a variety of books and papers on game music over the years, including one of my very favourites, The Cambridge Companion to Video Game Music. If you've not read it already, do yourselves a favour, head to Amazon right now, pick up a copy... It's brilliant. There is so much stuff in there that will blow your mind. I'm not even kidding. I learned about a music festival that takes place every year in Lord of the Rings Online, which, yes, obviously is very niche, but that is right up my street. Melanie is genuinely one of the most authoritative voices that I know on video game music and the history of video game music. In our chat, We talk about video game music as an identification process, the cultural impact on video game music, and how these amazing communities form around certain niches. And, speaking of niches, we also dive into the art of filking, which is fandom-driven music spinning out of existing songs. Really hope you enjoy this one. And thanks again to Melanie for sparing her time and joining us on the GXM podcast. Melly, can you just start by telling us a little bit more about yourself and what it is that you're doing at the moment? Yeah, um, first of all, thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here and so grateful that I can talk about my favorite topic, <laughs> game music. <laughs> I'm currently working um, as a junior professor at uh, Heinrich Hein University in Dusseldorf in Germany. And I am in the field of media and cultural studies with a focus on game studies and related fields. And one of those related fields is, of course, ludomusicology, which is the study of game music, games and music, video game music. I've, I've been working working in that field for over 10 years now. I wrote my PhD uh, on that topic. So I was looking at game music as a design element in games, fan cultural practices and music games um, as uh, as a special form. Mm. And yeah, we have the Ludomusicology Research Group. We are organizing annual conferences on the topic. We also have the Society for the Study of Sound and Music in Games, where we have like the international group, uh, where also our American colleagues are working with us and uh, many others. So yeah, there's a lot going on in that field and I'm very excited uh, to talk about it. It's strange because I think there's still a lot of people out there who love music but aren't necessarily aware that there's an entire academic field dedicated to studying video game music. But like you said, it's been going for 10 years now. And I don't know if it's just because I'm following like more people on Twitter who are part of that field, but 
it seems like it's growing bigger and bigger. Like what, what is the current state of the scene right now? And what are some of the things that I guess collectively people are looking into? There, there is a lot going on at the moment. So for example, if you look at the journal of sound and music in games that we have, where we have research published from practitioners, but also, of course, researchers, etc. We can also see that there's not only video game music that's of interest, but as I said, playful practices, fan cultures. So what's happening with fans, fan communities, what are people doing with game music, about game music, <laughs> which communities are, are founded. And what I'm working on at the moment is, or what I'm also interesting in, interested in at the moment is uh, music in LARP, so in live action role play. I'm currently writing on a paper on that topic, which is super interesting because there's also a lot that's happening. But also, of course, you have music in, in RPGs, uh, like when you play pen and paper, people often have music that accompanies them or on board games. I recall there was uh, a colleague of mine who presented something at the last Ludo conference about a game with birds, so we, where you could listen to the bird songs and this kind of stuff. So <laughs> it's super interesting. There is a lot going on. There is so much to unpick there. Let's dive into the fun aspects and the community building surrounding mm -hmm. video game music a little bit on. But I just wanted to start by asking you, obviously you're doing all of this amazing work on video game music. I discovered the book that you co-edited with Tim, a Cambridge yep. companion to video game music, which is honestly, there's a lot of video game music books out there. And I think what I liked about the Cambridge Companion to video game music is the fact that it touches on this community stuff, the general history of video game music, but the way you explore that history isn't just the traditional, let's look at hardware advancements and software advancements and kind of look at that over time or what came of that. It's also, here's all of the things that were happening culturally that mm -hmm. were kind of like adjacent to video game music. So... I guess just to start with, what was the rationale behind that book? Was that where you kind of sat down with your colleagues and went, we need to pull this together? Like we need to, and how, how do you decide which kind of themes make it into a book that's that comprehensive? To be honest, uh, it was conceptualized by Tim mostly, mm. and he then uh, approached me and asked whether I would be interested in working with him on that. So um, I have to give a lot of credit for that to, to Tim Summers. But yeah, the basic idea behind the book was actually to have something that's addressed to people who are not necessarily already knowing a lot about game music and the technology and everything. So it's a book that's addressed to like uh, graduate students or students or people who, yeah, are generally interested in the topic and just want to know, okay, what's possible? What can we research mm. there? What kinds of topics uh, are in that field that uh, one might look at? And this is also why we tried to organize it in several fields. And we were so lucky to get all these amazing authors who really got on board with us by writing very clearly, very understandably also for people who have not like five to 10 years mm. of, of experience and knowledge uh, in that field already. So that was the basic rationale behind it, that we wanted to have an introduction to the field and to cover as much ground as possible at the same time. Because, yeah, as we as we established, there's so much interesting yeah, and exciting the... stuff. You cannot have it all. But um, yeah, there, there's also another book coming out uh, soon, the Oxford uh, Handbook, Video Game Music, that will also 
I'm very sure cover a lot of topics that we couldn't cover. And yeah, the stuff that you didn't uncover, <laughs> like, there's <laughs> going to be so much in there. Like you just said, you said exciting stuff. Then what? What are some of the most exciting things? that you think you guys unearthed while you were researching and writing this are not necessarily unearthed in terms of like, here's loads of new mm. stuff, but maybe topics that you went into more detail in that people might not necessarily have been aware of the first time around. Yeah, for example, I, I was working myself on chiptunes in my own research. So I was very interested in how the community decided what is good, what's not, how those social processes around the music work and how do people collaborate or not. So the kind of discourses around chiptunes. Mm. And I was very excited, for example, about Kenneth B. McAlpine's chapter on chiptunes ownership and the digital underground. So how much it related to the hacker culture, etc. So I, I found that very intriguing when I read that. Or also, for example, Ben Babbitt, who thankfully gave us some insights into how the composition pr process for Kentucky Route Zero worked. So that was super exciting. Also, Yoko Ozawa, uh, one of the great first female composers, was also kind enough to talk to us. And so so many other interesting people, for example, Thomas Berker, who produced the first commercial game music concert that mm. we know of outside of Japan. Uh, he also spoke to us about how he went on producing game music concerts. Uh, Andre Ivanescu, who was writing about pop music economics and marketing. And yeah, Hilhonda Siridwald and Andrew Lemon writing about female game music composers. Uh, there was not much research out there at that point about female game music composers. And yeah, I would love to mention them all because there's so many fascinating aspects. Well, on the female game composers, let's dive mm. into that some more because mm -hmm. I would love to learn more and I think everyone would love to learn more about the important women who have kind of been at the backbone of this industry and I say that mm -hmm. quite literally because Alf Lila, Capcom's in-house band back in the day, that was kind of like a big deal to have all women in Capcom doing that. I struggle nowadays, like people always say to me, like, oh, name, like some of your favorite video game composers kind of thing. And it's yeah. like, it's easy to think of men because there's so much stuff that's been written about men doing stuff, but there's a lot less writing out there on the stuff that women are doing. Why do you think it is that despite the fact that there's a long link, it's not like a case of like women own the, the in industry in like the 90s yeah. or 2000s, you know what I mean? This stuff has always been happening, but it's a lot harder to find out who was doing what. Yeah. I mean, I hit that brick wall myself. I was trying to look into uh, female game music composers, and it's super hard to find out who mm. was working on which game. For the Japanese company, it's related to several, maybe cultural or business aspects. So, for example, many of them, it's not only the women, it's also the men who worked yeah. at these companies at the time. They had like monikers because uh, Junko Zawa in one interview, she said it's because the companies were afraid that they get hired away by other companies. So they ha they all had monikers and many of them had several monikers. So you have to know who had which monikers and then identify them in case they are credited. So they are not always credited. This is one aspect. The other aspect is that they had the so-called sound teams. So you just uh, also already mentioned the, the band, but also people working in the, in the audio departments, they were working collaboratively in a sound team. So for example, I think Neon Falcon were once they had the yeah. sound team JDK and yeah you, you just have to know who worked at that time at that project and it's almost impossible to find out if you cannot talk to the people or go to the uh to the archive even if, if they even have mm. material about that in their archive 
that's the first issue. The second issue is whether they let you look at it. And if you can talk Japanese, that's also a problem. So there is a lot of yeah cultural and business uh, aspects that was an issue. But what I found very interesting was, I think we all more or less know about the first ever video game music album recorded, which was produced by Harumi Hosono of Yellow Magic Orchestra. But then there was the second one. And this one, as far as I could find out, and I also have it here somewhere, it was only music by the female Namco composers, by Yuri Kokaino and Yonko Ozawa. So that's super interesting. I mean, the, there's just only music of those two women on this album. Apparently, it, it took so long that people were trying to to look into that and research and find out who these women were. I think maybe it's also a language issue because uh, mm. ludomusicology for a long time has been mostly done in, in Canada or it started out in, in Canada, in the UK, etc. And people do not necessarily speak Japanese. So maybe that's also an issue. Also, Yonko Ozawa and uh, Yuriko Kaino, they wrote for uh, arcade games mostly. I don't know if those were available uh, in the uh, US or in the UK that much. So it's also a matter of which platforms, which games were available where. And so many of the men like Koji Kondo, who we know, right? Yeah. Koji Kondo and Matsu, they wrote for the NES games already. So this is why I also think it's also an issue why we know their names and not necessarily those of those fantastic arcade game composers. Though some of them, like uh, Yoko Shimomura, we, we all know her name, yeah. of course. But it, it also seems like it matters which games were available where. What's the demographic makeup of the Luda musicology scene in terms of like male, female, yeah. non-binary? Like, how is that split? And how, how do you think? the video game industry is doing specifically around diversity with music and yeah. sound. Yeah, so for the ludomusicology community, I'm quite happy to say that it's a diverse bunch. So we yeah. have like very different people, as I said, from, from every part of the world by now, fortunately. Also in terms of, of gender diversity, it's a very diverse uh, group that we always gather uh, every year. So it always needs all the voices, right? For example, Tim Summers recently started a queer game music group. So there's also this... Um, queer studies approach towards it, which is super fruitful and, and super important to have. Regarding the industry, I can't really say. I mean, there are fantastic female composers still. <laughs> they always were there, right? Yeah. Uh, but now we we know about them. Like Sarah Schachner was thinking about, Michiro Yamane, Jessica Curry, Winifred Phillips, Lena Rain, Yuka Kitamura, all these brilliant women who are writing fantastic game music. I'm really happy that Tim uh, started this group and this conversation. And we also have this as a topic in the Cambridge Companion. We have this game music context and identities because playing games is a huge part of every player's <laughs> game yeah. player's life and biography as well. So we have these influences that also happen in terms of music. So, for example, I also recall when I was looking into my current topic of, of clubs and etc. That's it. That there were so many people that were saying, "Yeah, well, I." I played a certain game so streets of rage came up oftentimes and they were like yes and i played that and that was the first time in my life i heard uh, electronic music and i was so fascinated i wanted to do that i wanted to recreate that sound etc and it drew me into this kind of music making so there, there are so many touch points between people's lives and games and game music and and because of that it's so important to have like super mm diverse perspectives on that because there's so much that's happening there you cannot cover it all and it's important to have all these experiences 
you've mentioned the link between club culture there or, or club music a lot of people discovering club music from games like streets of rage and you know what mm. i was one of those because i played that game <laughs> when i was like what maybe five years old or something and you hear mm. that and then obviously because it's streets of rage it's one of those games that you revisit like as you get older as well and mm. like so for me like that game came out on xbox live i cared i play it again as a teenager but other than the music that was on the radio like i had no exposure to that kind of music because my parents didn't listen to that kind of music like they didn't really listen to music that much in general to be honest so hearing that and then knowing how it sticks with you and then i think games like wipeout as well because we can't talk about streets of rage without talking about wipeout right i've seen so many new articles coming out yeah. about wipeout recently where once again it's similar to how all of these kids got into punk rock and alternative music and metal and scar and stuff through tony hawk's pro skater like Wipeout was doing the same for like dance and trance and stuff, which I think yeah. is absolutely amazing. So with this being one of your like core areas of interest, what is it about this link between club music or electronic music and video games that made you so interested in this? And like, why yeah. did you seek out to research it and explore it more? Honestly, someone gave me the idea. That was one entry point. And the other entry point was that I was looking at uh, Tetsuya Mitsuguchi's Child of Eden. And I must honestly say, even though I'm the uh, love parade generation, I had no touch points with techno and electronic dance music before that. So I was like, I was rather your metal music and this kind of stuff. And I never really understood what, what was going on with these techno people. And then for my thesis, I found Child of Eden and I started looking into that and I got really interested and I found it so fascinating how he translated this 1990s European techno culture into this game. Also in Raz, of course, but then also in Child of Eden. So this, those were the two entry points. And then um, two colleagues actually asked me for a guest lecture on games and clubs because it was a talk in a series at the Robert Johnson, which is like a huge club and a very, very well-known club. And they have this series, Robert Johnson Theory, and they invited me over. So that was the moment when I said, okay, there, maybe there's more to that. Yeah. And then I started <laughs> looking into it. Uh, and, and I found it so fascinating. Recently, we, we picked that topic up again. Um, I, I'm saying we because uh, I co-edited a special issue with Helena Riedveld of the Journal of Sound and Music and Games. I think it's still available for free. So if you're interested in this topic and you can look at the fantastic writings we had there. And we also had, of course, one article on Wipeout, <laughs> but also another very interesting article by Michael Bridgewater, uh, which is called Slipstream. Um, it's a C64 game. So it's it's a new game. It's only released a couple of years ago or something. Really? And for, yeah. And it's for the C64. And it has a real old school um, demo scene, chiptune musician who did the soundtrack. And it's fantastic. So yeah, there is a lot of interesting stuff to discover still. And what I found very interesting was, yeah, well, how game developers try to translate the rave or the club experience into game form. At some point, I, I stumbled across someone who was who was writing also about clubs in games, and they were saying something along the lines like, "Yeah, well, those clubs and games are always so awful. They are full of strippers and aliens, and you do not want to be there." Actually, there are so many clubs in games that are like 
similar to film, basically. So they are like taverns yeah. in fantasy games. So you go there, you are not interested in dancing or the music or whatever. Usually you talk to the bartender or you go into the back room where something evil happens or the main baddie is sitting and you have to like get quests or whatever. But it's not so much about actually recreating that club experience but then there are the other games as i said like uh, res for example also wipeout or slipstream or child of eden etc etc which are very inspired by how going on a rave feels like so it's not so much trying to actually recreate the club experience but certain aspects of it you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, no, no, 100%. Because yeah. when you mentioned Mizuguchi's, we had James Milk on the podcast for one of our first episodes. And this was for a feature that we did on Kenji Ina, the video mm -hmm. game developer, who was also a musician and had this really strong link with music and um, just design mechanics in his games. Mm -hmm. But he was good friends with Miz. Um, and Ms. James and Kenjina used to go out clubbing together and mm. like basically just used to party really hard. So mm -hmm. you can see that. I think that's the difference, right? It's when you're part of those experiences and you live and breathe it, you can create more authentic experiences, right? And when I say create more authentic experiences, like that's not just creating a nightclub that looks and feels and sounds like a nightclub. That's mm. creating a game that isn't a recreation of a nightclub, but it has that same energy and that same vibe, which is everything that Mizuguchi does with his games, right? Like you were saying, whether it's Res Infinite or even Tetris Effect to an mm. extent, right? Like the music in Tetris Effect is not club music. It's kind of more like just electronic, like, I don't want to say EDM, but do you know what I mean? Like more like Euro trans kind of thing, but you listen to it. And when you play that game in VR, and for so many hours like I have as well, it takes you in and you lose yourself and you take that headset off and it's the same experience of like stumbling out of a nightclub at like half four in the morning where you just kind of go, oh, it's over. That, that went really fast. Do you know what I mean? It, it's mm -hmm. absolutely wild. Going back to the depiction of nightclubs in games specifically mm -hmm. really, really quickly, are there any examples that you can think of of games that have done that really well? I think the one that, comes to the top of my mind is hitman 3 the mm. nightclub level in that where it's got the banging techno soundtrack are there any examples that you can think of that have done it well not really i mean it also depends what aspects of the experience you mm. want to recreate for example um what i recently looked into what i find, found kind of interesting were those club curation games it's like a simulation where you build up a club etc and then also in gta you can do that i think right um in gta online where you can become a club owner and then it's not necessarily about being one of the ravers but curating the club like setting it up choosing the music so this is one kind of game that I, that I was lo lo looking into, and there were several of those which worked quite well. Then, of course, yeah, you have manifold depictions of clubs in games. I mean, Mass Effect, there is The Hive, I think it was in Deus Ex, uh, but I can't really say whether they, they're, they're more like those taverns, like where you yeah. find important characters, you have good music in the background sometimes, but they, they, they serve a purpose. Or I also recall in, in Heavy Rain, there was also this club scene where you had to, to strip for the shady club owner in order to get the information that you needed. I just recently watched the latest John Wick movie. And again, you know, you go in the club and it's like the shady demi world where you meet mobsters or, or even the high level criminals. Um, 
etc. So th this is something that you always, uh, uh, not always, but very often can find in games. What I also found super interesting was one of the earliest games I could find was an arcade game, which was called Disco Number no. 1. I don't know if you've heard of that nope. one. Yeah, I, th I think it was from 1982. And I found the leaflet in which the game was described. And so you uh, you were playing as a guy. So no name, no nothing. You were the guy. And you went to a roller disco. And your task is to draw rectangles around female figures to pick them up or whatever. So that's the goal of the game. So you have to draw rectangles around these female figures. And there are two uh, versions. The one version of these female characters are a little more sexy. They are called beauty queens and there are also the normal women, so to speak. And of course, if you catch the beauty queens, you get more points. And then there are ruffians <laughs> who beat you up when you are caught by them and the witch. And I do not know what this witch was about. I think it was just to to end uh, around when you were playing yeah. too long. So they uh, they came in they with a, the broom and wiped you out uh, at some point. So when you got caught by the witch, the, the game was over. So that, that was super weird in many regards, but also quite problematic in terms of the <laughs> narrative. So you're, you're basically praying a predator trying to pick up women. But yeah, 1982. Yeah, dodgy game. Dodgy, um, yeah. <laughs> it's interesting how club music found its way into games, I guess. So you had this, the whole story around Streets of Rage and Yuzo Kashira, Motohiro Kawashima, they were mm. going out for nights out into these nightclubs. Club Yellow, right? Yeah, Yellow. Yellow was the famous one. Yeah. yeah. They were playing loads of music from Detroit and stuff like that. And they were coming yeah. back and then just basically making yeah. music for the Mega Drive. That happened where people were taking influence from music outside of games and bringing that into games. Mm. Whereas now, I feel like you've got more people getting into music from games. So the trend that I've spotted in the past like two or three years mm -hmm. where all of these kids who were discovering club music through N64 games or PlayStation games or whatever else, they're building playlists and stuff or doing DJ sets. And I guess this is where it takes us on to community building as well. I feel like there's a community that has now formed around people seeking out obscure mm -hmm. pieces of music. Mm -hmm. that are like breakbeats or techno tunes or dance or whatever else. And I think there's something interesting around there in terms of you've just got an entire community that has formed just to do this. And I think that speaks volumes to the video game music scene as a whole, right? In terms of you've got these people who really like video game music because they maybe come from a background in dance or techno or house music or whatever else. You've got another community over here who maybe started playing an instrument because they're inspired to do that by like Ocarina of Time or something else. Mm. And then over there, you've got the kids who go down to the arcades every weekend and just play Dance Dance Revolution or whatever else. Like, why do you think these communities and fandoms form around specific aspects of video game music? All in all, in general, I think people love to engage with music, right? I mean, people also engage with film music or, for example, when I was a kid, the mixtape was a thing. So you were sitting in front of the radio and you were trying to wait, your favorite song came up and then you recorded it and made your own mixtape by that with your favorite songs. 
I think there there's just a craving for this kind of engaging with the music you love because it, we, we were earlier talking about music and identities and games and identities, right? So it's part of the identity formation process also, which kind of music you like. Uh, it has to do a lot with also, especially when you are younger, to define who you are. So mm. I'm a metalhead. I'm a Michael Jackson fan. I'm a techno fan. I'm a raver. I'm a goth. I'm a, you know, this kind of identification that you have with a certain style, with a certain community that forms around one uh, certain type of music and i think this recreates also of course with video game music and i mean karen collins even at some point wrote that games were also a huge part of the 1980s start of audio hardware and software being developed for home computers so that, that there was huge influence that people wanted to create stuff themselves and music was a huge part of that. We recently also talked about the trackers and the influence uh, trackers mm. had. And I mean, it was also something that people created themselves at some point. So like Chris Hulsbeck's sound monitor and then the ultimate sound tracker and the hack that then of course was super illegal but <laughs> and this is where we were back at where we were starting out uh, that people want to be active want to do stuff and they do it in so many fascinating ways i recall at some point i found someone on on youtube who played on rubber bands so he was playing one of the Legend of Zelda musics on rubber bands. <laughs> on rubber bands. like, this is working. It worked. <laughs> it was so fascinating. And people are putting so much time and love into that because they love that music. It's the innovation as well. And I know this yeah. is something that Tim, Tim Summers was talking a lot about in terms of even the, you've technically only got the, I think, six or seven notes or whatever it is in Ocarina of Time that you can play or, or you're meant to play in terms of the featured within the melodies that you need to learn to progress in the game mm. you've actually got a full range of chromatic notes in there because you can move the left analog or i can't remember which button it is but to hit a full range of notes there and then you've got people making like people doing renditions and it happened when the last of us 2 came out as well the last of us part mm. 2 where you could play the guitar in there so then all of a sudden people were kind of going hmm i wonder if i can play this song in there. Yeah, I, I was just thinking what I really find fascinating about games in general, but especially also about game music, is this how people love to play with what they have, right? Yeah. So, for example, with a demo scene and chip music and this kind of stuff. So people had like these computers and they were like, ah, huh, what can I do with that? Yeah. <laughs> and then there's so much creativity just exploding and people going going wild on this stuff and on this hardware and the software and they then they were like huh okay there is not the software i need for that oh well i created myself why not <laughs> right and this is what i find so fascinating about all these communities that i was looking into and also i read about because i also learn a lot from reading research by my colleagues so also the oc remix community for example about whom ryan thompson wrote there, there, there's so much creativity and so much love that goes into i want to play with this i want to do something with it i'm so fascinated by it i love it so much and there's also let's see um, what else we can do? What can we yeah. try? I, ca I can play this and that on rubber bands or on rulers or I don't know, whatever material. It's so the, the creativity and the playfulness that's going on there. And this is also something what makes the music of Umatsu so fascinating because he said it in one interview I read at some point. He said, I'm a musical omnivore. So he's just picking whatever he likes and puts yeah. it into his music and it's beautiful. <laughs> 
I think that's what makes everything so interesting because you've got this constant reinvention of themes that have been around for like 20 or 30 years in some cases. And I think as a fan, like hearing someone do a really killer remix of a song you've had an emotional attachment to for like mm. 20 years or 25 years, you know what I mean? Like here's Gerudo's Valley from like Ocarina of Time on the N64, but here's an EDM version. Here's a Bollywood version. Here's a pop version. Here's a contemporary classical version. Mm. And it just doesn't stop. It just keeps going. Like you look at what the 8 bit big band achieved, the fact that those guys picked up a Grammy award for best remix or arrangement, even for uh, Meta Knight's Revenge from a Kirby game on the SNES. And they're all just jazz kings who love video game music. <laughs> do you know what I mean? And the fact yeah. that they've done that is just so interesting. But yeah, I think there's something to be said about that playfulness and being able to do that in games specifically, whether that's the ocarina in Ocarina of Time or it's the guitar in The Last of Us. And then even look into how that's gone the other way. I think one of my favourite stories is Post Malone famously learned how to play guitar by playing Guitar Hero. And like he said that out to press. Yeah, literally he said that in an interview. He was like, I, yeah, okay. I learned how to play guitar through Guitar Hero. Probably not learned how to play in terms of like, he played Guitar Hero long enough and then he could just suddenly yeah. pick up a guitar and start playing. But you know, yeah, it, it got him... differently. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, I, yeah. But okay. it got him... Yeah. <laughs> it encouraged him to pick up mm. a guitar and start playing. And you know, mm. there's probably people out there who have picked up an ocarina just because there was an ocarina and ocarina of time and then kind of gone, oh, you know what, I like this, but... Let's be honest, it's a bit of a naff instrument. So then they've maybe gone, I'll try flute instead or clarinet or something else. And they stuck with it. Like, I love all that kind of stuff. Hmm. Yeah, 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 me too. Um, but what's interesting then again is rules start to come in. So what's what's a good cover? What's a good chiptune song? Hmm. What's a good filk song, for example? I love filking. I'm a huge fan. <laughs> I don't know if, if you know what filking no, is. No, what is it? This is actually, it started out, I think, in the science fiction fandoms where people met on conventions and sat in the corner and were playing with a guitar songs about Star Trek or whatever. Yeah. So they were making up songs about characters like Kirk or Spock, etc. And it's called Filking. And uh, Karen Collins wrote about that in her uh, book, Playing with Sound, that people create songs that are about game music or game music fandom or about specific games where they change the lyrics of a pop song, for example, into something about World of Warcraft or whatever. But there's always this expertise that's needed to understand that. You know what I mean? So, for example, I was in my research for my PhD, I was looking into musician who was doing parody songs for World of Warcraft. And there were so many small hints, her lyrics, that only yeah. people uh, who actually play the game or are very familiar with what's going on there could understand this kind of social rules on what you can do and what you mm. cannot do. So, for example, fan studies it's, it's oftentimes fanon and canon you know so what's canon with this and that character and what's fanon so what's not actually in the original but what's okay for everyone that you can do and i feel like this is also something that pops up in many of these game music communities as well in many regards so for example with chiptune something quite basic but whether you use the original machine or you recreate the sound of something so the so-called fake bits as some say there are these discourses around that i always also find very fascinating melanie it's been an absolute pleasure 
as always, thank you so much for joining us. If people want to learn more about you, keep up to date with what you're doing, and I guess also stay up to date with everything that's happening within Ludo Musicology, where, where should they go? Yeah, we are on Facebook. So for the elderly people like me, <laughs> you can find us on Facebook and also on Blue Sky, of course. So we have a website, also very classic, like ludomusicology.org or uh, for the Society for the Study of Sound and Music in Games, SSSMG.org. So yeah, also if you want to to look into research, we also have the bibliography on the Society website. So if you got interested in, hey, I want to learn more about chiptunes, you can search the bibliography for chiptunes and then find very much uh, amazing research by all my fabulous colleagues that you can get lost into. <laughs> Perfect. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Okay, we're going to replace our 60-second segment with something pretty pretty similar. We're just going to call it wintry baubles. So we've chosen something sort of Christmassy. And Matt, you don't know what it is I've picked. I've put the YouTube link down. You're going to close your eyes. You're going to have a listen to it first. And then we'll get your reaction and maybe a little guess, a wild guess about what it might be. Is this from a video game? Uh, yeah, yeah. Japanese composer. Yep. Okay, cool. I, I got that. I was going to say Western at first, and then about, I think about a minute in now, key kind of shifted and it just started playing some... Dun, 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 dun. I was like, right, that's Japanese now. Kind of getting, like, anime vibes, maybe? Some yeah. anime JRPG? That's, that's pretty warm. That's pretty warm. Okay, okay. It's very warm. Series-wise, I'm absolutely flawed. I'm maybe gonna go with an Atlas or a Bandai because I know they've got a lot of anime JRPGs, but not a clue on the IP or the specific composer. Xenoblade Fair. So I thought that the track title was appropriate for a Christmassy pick. It's uh, called White All Around Us, and it's from the incredible Xenoblade Chronicles Two soundtrack mostly by Yasunori Mitsuda or at least he's a he's a significant contributor to it and uh yeah it's just one of those lovely chill melodic yeah as you say kind of um anime-ish RPG-ish um uh tracks but the Mitsuda thing's interesting because obviously I know him mainly from his work on Chrono Trigger I just really know how much he digs like Celtic music. There seems to be this Celtic thing running through a lot of the music that he composes. So that, to me, did not sound like him. I think that's really interesting. I've never really dug into these soundtracks properly, though. And I think I'm missing out because everybody was raving about how good the soundtrack for Chronicles 3 is. They're all incredible. I mean, it's I, I haven't touched a single second of the series to play them. And they're, you know, 200 hours long each or whatever it is. But um, I made a point of 
trying to you know check in on stuff like there was like the Zeno Gears 20th uh, anniversary concert which was wonderful and uh, Barry Epoch Topping who we've badly got to get on here the composer for Paradise Killer is a huge huge Xenoblade fan you could set him talking about those soundtracks and games for weeks on end Um, so shout out to Barry Um, but yeah man uh, Xenoblade Chronicles 2 incredible incredible and it's not just mitsuda stuff um it's a it's wonderful all round. right i'm going to click on yours i don't know if you'll know this already i took a chance i'm gonna guess you might not do because it's not the most immediate song but dive in yeah i know what that is <laughs> Yeah, so I'd, I'd, I'd know that intro anywhere and also especially when the strings come in. But there's something very weird about this version you sent me. So that's Esto Gaza from Final Fantasy IX by the one, the only Nobuo Uematsu. Um, I guess you strayed straight into my mastermind subject territory, which is Uematsu PS1 uh, Final Fantasy things. But this is a very weird version because it's more protracted and it's got some like sound effects it's got some wind effects in the background so i presume it's one of these extended chill out meditation yeah you you said christmas and i thought you know what esther gaza yeah there's snow there but it's not technically christmas but you know what i've been listening to that on repeat for the last month maybe as i try and get in the mood for christmas and i found this track that has some wind sound effects on it and like (laughs) i think maybe some bells in the background it's kind of had that christmas treatment so i thought if i throw this at him maybe he's not but of course i'm talking to a uematsu ps1 stand like you said so um yeah uh it's it's weird when you slow it down like that i'm not sure i like it it's like there's something about stretching it and the sound of the instruments decaying a little bit um but um slowing down things actually is a kind of like a weird musical production technique that some artists chose to do i was once working in the studio as like a as like a runner or something and this band came in and they'd recorded a whole album and then they wanted to literally use specialist software to stretch the whole thing out to like incredibly slow like unlistenably slow and that would be the whole album and then there was there's this other i don't know if you ever heard this like this soundcloud person stretched out justin bieber songs Mm. till they were like half an hour long and it sounded amazing. Yeah. They'd used some kind of reconstructive software. So they, so it didn't, you know, because if you pull apart the samples, it starts to decay and sound sound awful. But it sounded really, really good. Like Justin Bieber at a thousand, you know, 1000% slower or something. No, I was about to say, I think there, there was a period of time, maybe I think two or three years ago, where these slowed down versions of songs were really taking off and everybody was doing them to like, I remember the Lord of the Rings theme and loads of other like famous themes from like weird TV series that you wouldn't normally listen to. But as soon as they slowed down by like a thousand percent or something daft, <laughs> they just sound like really nice, like 
ambient soundscapes. Well, it's just tree fingers by Radiohead, isn't it? It just everything ends up sounding like tree fingers. Yeah. <laughs> Um, it's definitely a vibe. It's definitely a vibe, and uh, yeah, in winter, if we can all take it a bit slower, we'll probably uh, we'll probably come out okay. There we go. Well, unfortunately, that's all we have time for on the GXM podcast. A happy new year to everyone out there. We've had a blast making this. It has sort of fit into our busy lives quite nicely. It's been difficult to keep, you know, uh, military-style regulation of, of, you know, one a fortnight. It's slipped a lot because of just, you know, busy family lives, busy lives, illness, you know, getting getting bitten by various viruses and all of that. So, um, so yeah, thanks very much for all the support. Everybody who's listening thank you it means a lot to us everybody who shares this podcast with the friends to all the guests that we've had on as well sparing the time to chat to us about video game music and tell us more about what they do thank you we really appreciate you taking the time to do that and if you're listening to this now and you haven't shared this podcast yet please do spread the word because we've got loads of cool things planned so yeah thank you to all of our current listeners we hope you've enjoyed what we've been putting out we hope you will stick around for the many months and hopefully years ahead and yeah thank you everybody yeah smash that subscribe button um don't smash your phone Press the subscribe button firmly, but with a, a intent to smash uh, figuratively. Uh, you can find us on Twitter, Instagram and threads at GXM Podcast. I'm at T Quilfell on Twitter. That's T-Q-I-L-L-F-E-L-D-T. None of this X nonsense. Matt is at Matt Ombler on Twitter. That's Matt with only one T. If you've got any feedback, hit us up at gxmpodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you and, you know, ideas for interview guests as well. The show was produced by both of us. It was edited by me and music is by Zach Foster. Bomb rush, cyberpunk, uh, bomb rush.